This morning's going to be hard. Uh, it's, it's already been incredibly hard for me, and it's going to get incredibly hard for many of you, which is a scary thought for me. Um, we have a false unity that we try to protect. I try to do it. Um, I know other people do, but we like the peace. We like when we're all together. We like when we're united. Um, we like pragmatically when we can all get on together. And so what we tend to do is, is spend most of our time talking about things that we can all agree on. Um, maybe challenging things, but all, always things that we can kind of come together around and find some kind of unity. Um, and there's a lot of things that we can all agree on, no matter what our political views, no matter what is going on, we can all agree that love is good, that lament is good, that humility is good, that forgiveness is good. And, and so sermons tend to maybe dabble a little bit here and there, but they'll usually go somewhere where we can all agree and feel maybe challenged or inspired or moved or nurtured or spoken to. Um, but the, the great irony there is then we go home and we talk religion and politics at the dinner table and the divisions emerge because they're there, right? And so what we don't really do is address the divisions so that we can find true biblical unity. We accept a bit of a pseudo-unity just because it, it's pragmatic and it works and it keeps the peace and keeps kind of all of us together but never really addresses the, the deeper divisions underneath. Um, this morning's not a sermon, and, uh, and it's not expository, um, and I'm okay with that. I've never been more prayed up before a sermon or a message or whatever you want to call it um, before, and in fact, I'm actually not going to talk to you this morning. Um, I'm going to talk to my daughter who's right there. And I asked, I asked permission if I could talk to my daughter, and she's cool with it. Um, Mary Joy and Esther, Mary Joy and, and I, we talk a lot. We get times in the car and, and long drives, and, and we get to really explore deeper issues, what we would call talks on wisdom. And the only way I think I can do what I feel called to do this morning is if I just talk to my daughter. Um, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to be political. I'm not trying to be confrontational. Um, but you might feel that way. And so I ask for a lot of grace this morning on not picking apart my words, but understanding my intention. There'll be a redux after the service uh, so that I can mop up <laughs> all of the damage I'm about to do. And, uh, and so I would ask that you would stay for that because I think it would be a shame if we can't find a way to express true unity, which is working through the willingness to work through difficulties and to remain in love, even if at the end of the day we don't agree on everything. Um, that's true unity, right, or love, is that despite the challenges or the things that would separate us, we still somehow, in the name of Christ, find a way to, to get back to center. Um, when all we talk about are the things that are easy for all of us to agree on, are we really united in Christ and are we really undergoing the sacrificial aspects of, of love? And I don't think we are. Um, so Mary Joy. Um, this is a hard sermon for your dad uh, because 
I think this is the most challenging context I've ever walked into because no matter what direction I take, there, there are people that are going to see it or hear it through a different lens. Um, and why is that? Uh, there's, I think you know, we talked about it, but there was two killings this week. Uh, two killings of people that shouldn't have died. However we view it, um, videos of very traumatic things of people who shouldn't have died. And there was also in Dallas, and I think you heard it on the news, and we haven't talked about this stuff, but uh, five police officers that died out of, I think, 10 or 11 that were shot um, at a rally for Black Lives Matter, which is really in response to the videos of the other men that were shot. And so you end up with a whole lot of trauma, a whole lot of grief, a whole lot of communities that are suffering, and it creates a really difficult context to talk about either one of them in depth without in some way offending the felt experience of the other community. Why is that? It seems kind of dumb, and that's because it is, because most things that seem dumb are dumb. Um, but we have this strange thing where we are habitually or naturally either or. And so if I really care about this one, um, the other one begins to be a threat to my experience or my narrative. In other words, when we add pressure to anything, it exposes the fault lines. It cracks where, where the grain in the wood is or where the seam or the joint was, it begins to crack there. So when you have a, a community that's grieving and you, you put that pressure on it, if you're to talk about another subject that, that puts any kind of a negative tension on, on this grieving community, you're against me. Uh, and vice versa. If I were to talk about your suffering or your thing, but I ignored this, then somehow you're against this. And so we end up with a kind of an either or thing rather than saying all violence is bad violence. All death, especially unnecessary death, is unnecessary. Um, wrong. That should be roundly condemned. And we also do something really interesting. When it's something that happens out of the blue in one community, um, it's, it's something wild and crazy and not the norm. When Dylan Roof went into a, a church a year ago and shot a bunch of African-American people that were in a prayer meeting, most white people in America said, that's crazy. That is crazy. And that's not white America. That's just one crazy dude. Um, and in no way, shape, or form can you put that back onto the rest of America. That's just a crazy dude. When something happens on the other side, we tend to go, no, that wasn't just a crazy dude. That was actually a result of, of what is happening in this difficult context. And, and your phrase, Black Lives Matter, actually incited the violence that this guy created. So it wasn't an isolated, crazy person. It was, it was really what you created, the conditions you created, that ended up with these, these people losing their life. Um, so if we're talking about guns, we want to say guns don't kill people. People kill people, right? But if this thing threatens us, we want to say um, it wasn't the person that killed people. It was the phrase that's responsible. And we, we begin to find these, these either-or ways of saying we can't talk about both and have, 
a very deep conversation into a messy reality um, that doesn't always have a resolution other than grief because things happen in this world that ought not happen. It's a broken world and there's evil um, and there's tragedy. And so confession one, um, I need to do a better job of loving police officers. Um, that's what I realized this week, that people who put their lives on the line every day, I put my life on the line every day with people's criticism. It's a lot different than putting your life on the line with, with, with the entirety of your life that, that at a traffic stop or, or at a drug deal or at an arrest that you, you can actually lose your life and that your family sends you out every day with that threat and that you're doing it because somehow the common good matters to you. Your loved ones matter to you. Innocent people in society matter to you. And the Bible says we should pray for our leaders that keep that peace. And so one of the realizations I had is I take a lot for granted and we need to pray more and care more about the people that put their lives on the line that way. Especially now when more police officers lost their lives the other day than, than since 9-11. And so you have an incredibly traumatized community. It happened out of the blue, it happened without warning, it happened in an unjust, random way. And so the community of police officers nationwide, when they go out to protect people at a peaceful rally, wonder, um, am I gonna be targeted? Am I gonna be in the sights of somebody's gun? Am I gonna be these things? And, and when one, bo uh, one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body should suffer. When Christian brothers and sisters are working in the police force and they're suffering, that it's a very difficult job right now and a lot of eyes and a lot of criticism and, and there are certainly bad apples or evil people in every profession. I can count the number at least four pastors that have fallen morally in this town since I got here, made really bad ethical decisions. Um, there's bad pastors or pastors that make big mistakes. Uh, there are bad politicians or politicians that make big mistakes. There can be bad teachers or teachers that make big mistakes. It doesn't mean that if we talk about the challenges that some have had, that we're, we're calling the whole rest into question. To press into something, we're able to look at all of it. And this, this is really easy when I talk to police officer friends because they can make that distinction between good and bad. They see, they see it probably more than anyone else. But the bulk of people are protecting and serving and we have a country that lives with law and order and I need to do a better job of understanding and respecting that. Um, I met a man in Phoenix a couple years ago on a trip that had led the Food for Hungry office in Congo, and I asked him, he'd done it for many years back when all those rebel groups were going around, and I asked him when he came back, his wife wasn't allowed to go with him. It was a solo assignment because it was so dangerous. And I asked what he'd learned when he came back, and it really surprised me. I expected like a Bible answer. And what he said to me was, um, we have no idea what we take for granted in terms of law and order in our country. Like that we have the rule of law and order in our country. Um, I could talk to Mike and Ann and ask them probably the same question. IJAM had some people killed in Kenya this past week. 
Um, the rule of law and order is a beautiful thing, and we take it for granted. Um, there's a deeper thing beneath a lot of the drama going on in America, though, and it's, it has to do with race. So if you talk about the violence in America now, it's stemming from racial issues that have long existed. If we talk about the bombing in Iraq, so in Baghdad, 120 people were killed last week in a bombing. 120. Um, and we're so used to it. Like, that kind of stuff happens over there. And so we kind of move on. We're so used to it. Why does that bombing happen? That bombing happens for political and religious uh, reasons. ISIS is trying to bring back a caliphate that existed with the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was crushed in World War I, and you saw several countries emerge, and actually the Western powers, uh, Winston Churchill, long before he became prime minister, went there. He went there with T.E. Lawrence, that we know as Lawrence of Arabia, and they carved up the Middle East. They created boundaries and created, birthed countries and set up kings over some of those countries. And they went right through tribal lines sometimes. That's why you have northern Iraq is, Kur is Kurdish, and they don't even really affiliate or understand the rest of Iraq. They're just different tribal things, but we created these countries. And so ISIS is seeing the, the destruction of the caliphate, which was their kind of religious country, as being something that happened, unfortunately, because they lost a war to Christian nations. And so for them, they're fighting this religious war to reinstate something that they feel like was taken from them by these other people that are diff very different than them. And then they also fight kind of amongst themselves from Shia and Shiite, two different sects of, of Islam going all the way back to right after Muhammad died and who was supposed to take over leadership. And so these two groups are incredibly divided. And so you have this interesting thing where they're fighting a war and people die in wars and so they will justify blowing up marketplaces, killing 120 people, maiming so many other. A friend of ours, Jeremy Courtney, I think you've met Jeremy, um, was sharing a story of a mother who was looking for her son but being kept back because all the bodies, it, it created such a firestorm that the bodies were charred. A lot of these bodies were burned beyond recognition, and the mother was wanting to get in and try and find her son, and the workers wouldn't let her, and they said, the bodies are burned, you can't recognize your son, you can't ID him, you, you, you have no reason to come in here. And she said, well, just let me in, I'll smell him, I know my son's smell. I mean, what's going through the mother's mind at this point, that she's so caught up with grief and passion to try and find her son, that this is, this is what's going on in the world. Those ones in the Middle East, politically motivated, religiously motivated. In America, we have real racial issues. Why? Because um, the settlers that came here, the pilgrims, were, were fleeing Europe because of religious persecution, but they came as white Europeans with doctrines that they got from either the Pope or bought into economic theories that allowed for the enslavement of other people. And that that took racial lines. And so from 1700 all the way up to the civil rights legislation in 1964. Your dad was born in 72. So from 1700 to 1964, almost 300 years, 
there was state-sponsored oppression of people based on the color of their skin that's happened in America. And there's only been 50 years since that. Um, most of our history has been thoroughly constructed upon racial lines. And so that creates uh, a real interesting scenario. Um, and this is where it gets difficult because for us to really come to grips with that, it's a long, deep conversation, but we're so emotionally charged that we never get into the conversation. What I mean with that is um, if we went with Travis to play golf, and worst, and he was measuring up a putt, you know, Travis would look at it from every angle, right, to know how to do it, because Travis is a good golfer. I don't even know if Travis is in here, but you should go golfing with Travis. Um, you're, you've been playing chess with your sisters, and what did I teach you? When you make a move, with your queen especially, because she's pretty rad, you keep your finger on it. Why? Because as long as you have your finger on that move, you can look at it from every angle because your queen is really important and it's worth looking at it from every angle. Does that make sense? When we go to buy a house, when we go to make big decisions, we look at it from every angle. When we do anything in society, we look at it from every angle. When we talk about really important topics, guess what happens? We don't because our emotions get in the way. Um, we feel threatened. We think we already know the answer. We've been indoctrinated as we grew up with a certain perspective. And so we don't look at it or we're not willing to look at it from every angle. And so then all of a sudden we come in with either misinformation, not enough information or twisted information. And we run into other people that oftentimes are very much the same. And we trade emotion. And we don't really have a deep conversation where we begin to learn, like, this is what it feels like for you. Um, oh, this is what it feels like for you. Uh, rich have a perspective. Poor have a perspective. Uh, African Americans have a perspective. Asian Americans have a perspective. Latinos have a perspective. Men have a perspective. Women have a perspective. Millennials have a perspective, and it's very different than their grandparents' perspective. We all have perspectives, and there's truth in most everyone's perspective. And when we don't take the time to understand or see things kind of from that, we cannot truly come to appreciate why the other person believes what they're, they're believing or feel what they're feeling. And if we can't understand or feel, then we can't relate. And if we can't relate, then we just end up fighting. Um, so here we go, right? There's two views a liberal view that you should critique everything bad about America. There's a, a corresponding conservative view that, you know what, a lot of people have died for this country. This is a much better country than anything you're going to find anywhere else. So when you critique it like that, you're dishonoring all the people that have, that have fought and died for this country. And, and not only that, but you're going to begin to erode uh, trust in what what a conservative believes is a very good thing. And so you end up with people that are patriotic or people that would be called less or unpatriotic. Now, what do I always teach you about two extremes? 
yeah, see it in your eyes, um, that the truth is in the middle. And uh, here's the interesting thing. America is not a theocracy. Um, God might bless us, may have blessed us, might still bless us, but this idea that we're the apple of God's eye, which makes America immune from criticism, doesn't hold up biblically. Israel was the apple of God's eye. And even though Israel was a theocracy, it belonged to God, it was the, the people called by his name, it was the apple of his eye, the prophets still railed against the injustices of Israel. And Jesus came and Jesus railed against the injustices of the leaders of Israel. And so you see, even when something is favored by God, even more so, there should be an expectation that we, we shine a light on the injustice. And if we shine a light on truth, we're going to see the good things and the good possible things as well as the things that need to be fixed. But if we're only defending, we never allow the prophetic voice to do its work, which is to call into question that which is not true, not good, not righteous, or unjust. And so your dad loves America. Um, your grandpa your opa uh, served in the military for 25 years. He fought for this country. He knows firsthand. What was it you said to me in China? Dad, thank, thank God I'm not a communist. You, you know what's beautiful about this. Um, but America has done and continues to do things that have to be called into a question. Um, because we were so worried about communism, we, along with the British, overthrew a democratically elected leader in Congo in the early 60s named Lumumba. And we propped up a military leader by the name of Mobutu. And he was one of the longest reigning dictators for a very long period of time. And his people remained oppressed. And we called him a friend of America. And it was simply because Lumumba was beginning to entertain wanting to go to the Soviet Union for economic help or military help, and this guy was our guy. And he was a good guy, why? Because he wasn't gonna run to the communists. And so what was good for us was really challenging for the people of Congo. And so when we look at the people of Congo today that have been exploited ever since King Leopold and the Belgian came down there with gun, guns and killed more people than Hitler killed, um, and that they've been oppressed by their own leaders with the backing of foreign powers, and that even today, because of economic consumerism and the rich mineral resources in that country, they still are oppressed. And we look at that, and, it, and you begin to realize that sometimes when we say this is in our own uh, interest, we, we use a phrase called, this is in our national interest. So when we get together at a table and, and make political decisions in America, sometimes we know what's best for us, and when we say our national interest, we actually mean that. It's not always the best for some other country. And you begin to realize that's complicated. I had a student at Kilns from Mexico. She came up to study here because she wanted to get away from the, the gang killings. And she wrote her paper on how the U.S. encouraged the growing of opium, which was illegal in Mexico during World War II because we needed more morphine painkiller for the, the soldiers on the front lines. And that when we look at what's going on, what is, what is going on with Mexico and these gangs and these, these killings, like can't, why can't they get that under control? And that in some small way, if you trace it back, we're complicit in that. We talk about trafficking. 
Um, human trafficking. Pattaya, uh, Pattaya is, a, is a coast city in Thailand, a coastal city that was a sleepy fishing village. And you know, our friend Rachel does the whole thing that we go to in Thailand with the Sold Project. In that sleepy fishing village, crazy enough, when the Thai government worked out with the U.S. government that our soldiers were going to be able to do R&R in Thailand during the Vietnam War, that small city turned into the Las Vegas of sex tourism, where you could buy sex with young girls. Most of those girls, many of them, like today, being sold into that industry or pushed into that industry by families that needed money or by relatives that wanted to exploit them. And our language around Vietnam or, or shortly after was, you know, soldiers on R&R, boys will be boys, they're going to get into trouble, it's crazy. But we don't see the connection that the sex tourism industry, this global industry of flying somewhere to buy sex, is somehow, in a strange way, tied up with decisions we've made that affect other countries. It doesn't make us unpatriotic to look at things we do and say um, that had unintended consequences or we were wrong there and that we somehow have to do better. It doesn't make us less Christian to talk about the negative things. In fact, when you get in an argument with your sisters and fight, we don't let you move on until you address the breach of relationship. Um, it's natural, it's human tendency to want to move on quick. It's natural for you guys to want to move on quick. It's easier to not have to deal with the mess. And we have a, an idea in America of progress that whatever happened, it happened in the past, but we're pretty good people and we're moving forward. And so, you know what, let's just move forward and things will iron themselves out. We don't really want to look at kind of what's past. And so people that have grown up on the underside of history, um, they have a very different perspective than, than oftentimes white people in America. So amongst Christians, African-American Christians and white Christians have a radically different uh, view of race. Recent Barna study showed this. Almost like double the difference in the numbers of people that would see or understand a racial problem. Why is that? It's really plain. Because we have different experiences. We have different experiences. The white evangelical grows up with a different experience and a diff different story than the African-American evangelical. They grow up in different zip codes oftentimes. Um, their history is different. They don't, I don't have a grandpa that had to stand in um, front of water fountains and realize that one was for them and the other one wasn't permissible. Um, different experiences. And if we don't understand that, then we don't understand when someone says in pain that, that I'm going to proudly wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt because we don't understand the felt experience of racism. We've never, like Micah Bournet when he went to Hong Kong, Micah, the spoken word poet that was here, I didn't ask him if I could share the story, but he put it on Facebook a couple years ago. But he went to Hong Kong for the first time for the Justice Conference, and we've been there several times. It's a very big city, millions of people. I never once have, have even seen a police officer in Hong Kong. Micah went there one time, he was walking around in the middle of the day, bright sunlight, going from the hotel to the church, and he was stopped, asked for his papers, put against the wall, and frisked. 
while thousands of people walked by on the street in broad daylight. Micah knows what it's like to experience a different reality than what I experience. And when he is saying black lives matter or Leroy Barber is saying black lives matter, they're saying what ought to be obvious obviously isn't. And we have to call attention to this until there is not stated equality, but felt or real equality in our society. Um, Black Lives Matter is very contentious right now because you have two different sides. In other words, one side that is coming from an experience of prejudice or racial bias and another one that is saying, the more you talk like that, the more people get, the more scary it gets because you're getting worked up. And the more worked up you get, it feels like it threatens me. And I don't like that and I wish it would subtly calm down. And so I'm gonna find ways of trying to put that in a box to try and say it shouldn't be as wound up as it is, which is exactly what happened during Martin Luther King Jr. in his whole kind of nonviolent resistance movement. And by the way, your dad thinks Martin Luther King Jr. is probably one of the most courageous men I've ever even heard about. But when I grew up, Martin Luther King Jr., the only thing I ever heard about him in class, in school, and in, in, in culture was that he cheated on his wife. Do you know that? As a white man growing up, I was taught by white people that what you really need to know about Martin Luther King Jr. was that he was a philanderer. Needless to say, most every president, white president, has been. A lot of the people that have statues around Washington, D.C., a lot of the heroes that we would, we would aspire to. I mean, you know what I teach you, all men are what? All men are bad unless dad tells you otherwise. Um, <laughs> but how is it that we, we, in white culture, the white culture I grew up in, how is it that that is the only narrative of Martin Luther King Jr.? What he did was remarkable. And that he kept standing up to violence with a response of nonviolence. I couldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. It would have got under my skin. And he led that movement and gave his life to that movement, endured the death threats, the burnings of his house, the, 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 the bricks through the window. And, and so you talk to African-American community, Leroy, Donna, they're teaching their kids about this hero that did something remarkable that very few other people could have done and what it brought about. And the interesting thing is when he was doing that, even though it was nonviolent, it still created so much tension that everybody, including Christians, were saying, stop, stop rocking the boat, stop, stop creating all this tension. Let it all work itself out. Um, the letter from a Birmingham jail, which you'll read, was a response to pastors that said, stop doing this. You're, you're rocking the boat. We don't like it. It's, it's, it's creating all this tension. And Martin Luther King Jr.'s response was, that's what prophetic fire is. 
is that you spotlight an injustice to the point where it creates tension so that people have to see and deal with it. And so when people are saying Black Lives Matter and it's creating tension in us and we begin to feel like, it's hard to control, it's a lot of emotion. This is not a justification for any shootings, anyone doing any violence, but 99.9% of the people that go out and, and, and peacefully protest, they're simply trying to say, this is a truth I, I feel I have to spotlight, deeply feel I have to spotlight. Why? Because my sons that are colored sons, I have to talk to them about how they conduct themselves in public because people will misunderstand their actions. Opal never had that conversation with me. Um, and so when we say things like all lives matter, a lot of people a lot of Christians respond to Black Lives Matter with, that's racist. You should say all lives matter because we're all children of God. And Mary Joy, it's, it's, it's not helpful for two reasons. One, if you're talking to a traumatized person and you're mincing words, you're not mourning with those who mourn. So an African-American this week and some of the things they were dealing with and trying to wrestle with, if you're saying, wow, there's a better way to say it, it's a lot like saying to somebody who just lost a loved one of cancer, but what really killed them was their heart stopped. And, you know, hey, you're saying that your dad died of cancer, but that's actually not true. Like, it was cardiac arrest. You know, I know he had cancer, but, you know, it'd be better if you said it was cardiac arrest. You know, like, it... If you're a bystander and you're talking to someone in grief, you just go, I know what you're saying. There's nothing untrue about Black Lives Matter. If you believe all lives matter, then you believe Black, black Lives Matter too, and you just let that go. The second reason it's problematic is if, if, say, Sarah is having some real problems, and you come home and you find me with Sarah on my knee, and I'm saying to her, Sarah, I love you. You really matter to me. And you walk on over and say, Dad, like, we all matter. You have four daughters. Like, hello. Like, you can't say Sarah matters. Like, we all matter. And I would look at you and I would say, Mary Joy, you know better. Now's not the time for that. Right now, Sarah needs to hear that she matters. And it's perfectly correct for me to look at her and to say, Sarah, you matter. There's Sarah. I didn't know Sarah was here. Sarah, you matter. One of the most powerful things I heard was Rudy Rasmus. Juanita spoke here. You'll remember her as the, the, the woman who laid prostate on the stage for a very long time. If you were here, you'd know what I'm talking about. Rudy's her husband. They're pastors down in Houston. They started with a homeless church 25 years ago. Juanita's had tuberculosis from, from ministering to homeless people. Two of, two of the heroes of the faith for me. Rudy grew up in Houston under Jim Crow. Rudy stood before those two fountains. He says his favorite thing to do in the summer was to go to the zoo because at the zoo, they had a really cool uh, lion drinking fountain, but there was only one. And he got to drink from the fountain with all the other kids. And we were at a meeting and someone asked Rudy about Black Lives Matter and he just kind of was like, man, when I stood in front of those two drinking fountains, I wish someone would have told that little black boy that his life mattered. One of the most famous sentences in English 
Mary Joy, is we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I could easily rephrase that. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all lives matter, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've said all lives matter for a very long time. Matter of fact, that's what we said at the, the very beginning, but we don't really believe it. When we said this, women's lives didn't matter as much. Brown lives didn't matter, black lives didn't matter. We said it as people that wanted freedom from a king that said you can't have representation or a voice or a vote in what's being decided. And these men that said, you can't tell us that, King George, because we're free men, at the same time they were declaring that, had, had people of a different color skin in chains. And when we wrote, by the way, the Declaration of Independence, it says in our charges against King George, it talks about him and those merciless Indian savages. Uh, I'm really going to... So Franklin Graham, who fell very far from the tree, uh, evidently called on all his followers uh, um, to kind of avoid this liberal justice conference because they had a speaker there. By the way, a friend of ours by the name of Mark Charles who teaches worship at Calvin College. Native American guy teaches worship at Calvin College. Like, it's pretty conservative, okay? But at the Justice Conference, Mark Charles said, the, the Declaration of Independence was a, was a racist document. You can't read it and understand it in its historical context. It doesn't mean that there's not good things in it or that it led to some good things in America, but it, it has a racist view of certain people in it. And Mark was just trying to reason with other Christians and and so out comes Franklin Graham about, it's calling the framing documents of America racist. We need to boycott this. What about the Constitution? I'm trying to talk to my daughter because I didn't want to preach at you. Constitution says that you got this imbalance. We're going to talk about representation in Congress and the Senate, but there's more northern people than there are southern people. So how are you going to get equality in the House of Representatives, like equal numbers to balance the powers. And the Southern people really cared about this and they were rich and they were powerful. And so they worked out a compromise and eventually it was, look, Native American people, Indians, they're not gonna count. Black people, they're gonna count, in other words, your property, they're gonna count as two-thirds human. It's the two-thirds claw in the Constitution. They're gonna count as two-thirds human. They don't get a vote. They don't get a say. They're not free. It doesn't matter. They're gonna, they're gonna accrue up to you so that you get two-thirds credit for them when it comes to representatives in kind of Congress, right? So it's not even Franklin Graham's place to say, like, we can't say that there was racism at the founding of America. What child doesn't know? that there was racism at the founding of America. And if we try and say somehow all that's just gonna get whitewashed, the stones will cry out. You know what'll cry out? The dead will cry out. Somebody brought me a certificate from a, a funeral home from the 1970s, so this is after the Civil Rights Movement, 
And it, and it had in the legal language that there would never be African-Americans buried in this plot of the cemetery. In other words, when you die, you get to be buried in a white-only plot of that cemetery. The racism of America is in the bones in the ground, and it can't be rearranged. And so it's complicated. Um, let's roll this one really quick. Uh, for a lot of African Americans that grew up in the South, the federal systems were an arm of, of a racist federal government. So judges would levy fines against African Americans that came in their court, called a court tax, so that they could then put them into debt bondage, or what was called peonage sometimes. So basically, someone else is gonna pay your tax, now your life belongs to them, and, and you have to work for them. A, a kind of legal slavery that the system was pushing. And then as you're working for this person, they have legal control over you, and so they can begin to say, you now owe me more money. You now owe me more money. And you end up in this kind of a bondage situation. David Miller, who was here for a long time at Antioch doing setup and all that from Greenville, South Carolina, one of the people that made the most amount of money on debt bondage or what was called convict leasing, in other words, you could take, if you owned a jail or ran a jail, lease out your, your convicts to do, go do work. They didn't mix the races, though, so oftentimes the white convicts were in a jail cell, and it was the African-Americans that would go, go get farmed out, and they began to create laws on loitering aimed at black people. So if you're standing on a corner, you could get picked up for loitering. Why? Because there's an economic contract that just came in and we need more workers and in a racist South, then this is how we fill the ranks of that. So there was slave labor in this, this form of convict leasing and there was this debt bondage and one of the people that made the most amount of money on this in Greenville, South Carolina, as David was doing research, his school was named after the guy, a street was named after the guy and because his Baptist church was on the street named after the guy, the the guy's name was on the Baptist church. A guy that profited after slavery from oppressing people of color. And David begins to rethink everything about his perspective of this. Cabrini Green, why are all these shootings? I, 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 here are some bad arguments that come to me. Um, it was Africans that sold Africans into slavery. Do I, do I need to answer that bad argument? that some people profiteered in Africa off of the sale of Africans, that somehow that makes <laughs> slavery not, not a responsibility of anybody else, but just that black person that sold someone into slavery? Or like somehow, you know, two wrongs make a right? Well, we didn't do it alone. There were some black people that were involved. And so since black people were involved in the enslavement of black people, you know, it's not like it's really, like how does that even work logically? What about the violence in Chicago, black on black? You know what, if they would just get that figured out, then maybe we could talk about some of this other stuff. You know what, I know your test just came back uh, that you have cancer, but you've got some really bad breath. Like you don't take care of yourself. Like your, your hygiene is really bad. You go fix your bad breath, then we'll talk about the cancer. Like, like again, just because there's another wrong out there doesn't make this wrong somehow something that we just put on hold. Secondly, why is there black on black violence? 
Cabrini Green in Chicago was a project, an idea of like, what do we do with these black people that are showing up in this urban context and, and we don't know what to do with them? Why don't we know what to do with them? Because they're fleeing oppression in the South and lynching, okay? And coming up to the North, why? Because it's an industrial center looking for jobs. Why don't they go into normal houses? Well, partly because they don't have a lot of money because they were oppressed in the South and you have the whole sharecropping thing and everything else. Um, but there's a bigger reason. They weren't allowed into the white communities. In fact, it was written into the ethical codes that if you were a real estate agent and you put a person of color or an immigrant into that neighborhood, you were committing an ethical violation. So these people had nowhere to go. When two of them tried to, they went, African-American couple went in and got an apartment, put their stuff in it. It created one of Chicago's race riots. And everybody came out. These people had to run for their lives. They went in and threw out of the second story every piece of furniture this African-American couple had, then set the place on fire and burned down half the block. They weren't allowed anywhere else. So what do you do with these people? The government came up with this idea. We'll create a ghetto. Call it public housing. And... and uh, because what else are you going to do? And so we kind of put these people there. And then this ghetto, we begin to look at it decades later. And we're like, man, why do all those people live in those kinds of places and, and get into things like drugs and this and that and the other? And we completely lose the sight of the racist kind of history of it. And then we begin to go, that's got to get cleaned up. We got to do urban renewal on that. So Cabrini Green was recently shut down. But the promises made to create others other housing options for them never actually came to fruition and there's all these court cases going. So you had 18,000 housing units get shut down with all these people being displaced and so some of them end up homeless because they can't just go from public housing into buying housing in this inflated market of Chicago. Some of them ended up in Inglewood. So you leave Cabrini Green, you go to another impoverished area and now all of a sudden you got turf wars. Why? Because you have people that have been living there for generations, and now people living somewhere else for generations, their turf has been messed with, and they end up over here, and you have this conflict, and you have all these different things going on, and meanwhile, you're building high-rent, high-rises in nice coffee shops, and then we begin to go, look at all this black-on-black -black violence, and we have no idea that somehow we've been creating policies from the very get-go that, that are causing problems with these communities. And when black people are shooting black people, we never stop to ask the question, where did they get that view that human life doesn't really matter that much? Is it maybe because as they were growing up in the projects, in the ghetto, and hearing stories from their parents and grandparents, or when they were beginning to realize that their school doesn't look like other schools, or when they're pushed out with nowhere else to go, but they don't have the money or the political cachet to actually fight for some kind of a healthy resolution. We just went into Fallujah, or the Iraqi army did, and it created hundreds of thousands of refugees. And Jeremy Courtney emails me and he says, how can we make such good preparations for war and, and have no thought given to how to take care of the people that are affected by that war? 120 degree heat and people sleeping on the sand being burned, no tents, nothing, nothing to kind of, I mean, just your skin being filleted on your body, no food, no water. And so the same kind of a thing, we go in and go, wow, we could economically develop this, look at all the things it's gonna do for us, and it's gonna really clean this area up, but we're not really thinking of the unintended consequences of how we're gonna move these people into a healthy situation. There are so many people working right now in Chicago for 
restoration of peace and order against violence. 2,000 people have been shot already to date. There are moms keeping their kids in all summer. There are people quitting their jobs to start nonprofits. There are pastors and volunteers and deacons at churches all across Chicago creating after-school programs, trying to go in and, and work with sports. There are pastors like Jonathan Brooks that were here that are going and planting churches right where people are dying. I mean, I mean our Christian brothers and sisters are up to their neck uh, over their, I mean, they're, they're in over their heads with work. And when we stand back and go, until they figure out black-on-black -black violence, yeah, then, then, then should we really be talking about Black Lives Matter? Where did they get the idea that maybe humanity didn't matter that much? Um, VRBO units don't sell to people with African-American sounding names the same way they do to other people. Um, studies done on job interviews where if you have an African-American sounding name, you don't get the callbacks even though it's the exact same resume as the white sounding name. I've never gotten on a plane and had an old lady clutch her purse close to her chest. It's not that she would think she's racist. It's that we've be become socialized to that. We've grown up in a culture that teaches us to fear black men before we ever learn anything about their character or see the image of God in them or find out their story, we're programmed because it's other or because it's different or because we've grown up in segregated communities because we had access to suburban neighborhoods or whatever else it might be, that we somehow have this socialized kind of view. And our African-American friends are saying, we feel that. We experience it. On a daily basis, it, it comes in. And so you guys can have your sermons where everybody agrees and you walk out feeling ministered to, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're over here and you're not hearing us. You're not trying to stand here and look at it from our perspective to feel our pain, to stand in solidarity, and to maybe possibly realize that you've been a bit complicit in benefiting from the structures and systems with a white normative kind of culture. By the way, white Jesus Jesus was brown, and he was a, where did Abraham come from between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers? Where is that? It's Iraq, or Iran, it's one of those two. But, but Jesus' whole lineage was brown. Our picture of Jews comes from World War II, European Jews, and the, and the footage we see of the Holocaust, that's our picture of, of Jews, but that's a European Jew picture of the diaspora and people that lived for thousands of years in Europe. There are Jewish communities in Syria, Morocco, all around the world there's Jewish communities, and they look very different than our picture of Judaism, but Abraham came from between the Tigris and the Euphrates, and when his son needed a, a wife, where did he send his servant to go find the wife? Back to his father's homeland. Jesus was brown, Jesus was a refugee. What did he do when he was escaping infanticide from Herod? He went down to Egypt to get away from that threat of violence, state-sponsored violence. Jesus was a refugee. This is really trippy, but Jesus was actually also homeless. For three years he walked around, maybe bummed somebody's couch here and there, but he would tell people, look, I mean, even birds have nests and that kind of thing. I sleep under the stars with my head on a rock. Our Jesus was brown, refugee, homeless guy. 
And our narrative of Jesus is a very white one created with the pictures that we've drawn and that, that uh, Mormons drew. That's a big history of that. And so we get this picture. So the last two Jesus films was Ralph Fiennes and the upcoming one with Ewan McGregor. So Jesus is a British white guy. Now, that doesn't seem like it matters much, but we reinforce this idea of white normative culture. And so we don't see racism. Why? Because we're in the center of the river where it flows, and so we don't really see it. White privilege, we get offended at that phrase. Well, you're saying I don't work hard for what I got? No, I'm saying that if you were brown, you'd have to work harder. I talked to a lawn guy one, one time, and he said, man, I had, had no privilege I said, really, how do you get your business? He goes, uh, I go door to door and, and put knockers on doors. Where? Suburban neighborhoods. I'm, I'm like, okay, where do you work? Well, in their lawns. When do you do it? I don't know, between nine and five. Okay, so when dad's gone, maybe mom's gone too, but dad's gone, daytime, you know, front yard, backyard. Well, both, front yard, backyard. I'm like, so you don't think if you were an African-American guy in the suburb walking around at those doors, and then wandering around front yard, backyard while the dad's away, that that wouldn't somehow maybe make your business a little harder? There was a story a couple years ago of a Harvard law professor who was going into his own home and someone driving through the mostly white neighborhood thought this guy was out of place, called the cops. And by the time the cops got there, he was in his house, policeman. I, I'm not saying this to be injurious to police at all. They were responding to a call. They were doing their jobs. But somebody just made the assumption to call them in the first place. And so while he was being cuffed in his own house, he's trying to tell the officers, look at the pictures on the wall. I'm, this is my house. I'm not saying that you had a handout or that you've had it easy. What I'm saying is that if, if you were born white, you were born into a privileged color in America. And if you, if you don't see that, then you can't understand the felt reality of someone that has grown up understanding that there's a difference. And this person is a brother or sister in Christ. Well, I want to be colorblind. Um, God didn't want to. God, God didn't want to be colorblind. He created the colors. The idea is not to like not see your color. The idea is that I see your color and I have negative associations with it. And that there should be a day when the associations I have in seeing your color are a beautiful representation of who you might be made in the image of God. The same way I would look at someone in my family or my church when I see them and their color. It's not being colorblind. There's beautiful diversity. There's different cultures, jazz music, born, you know, whatever it is. It's not being colorblind. Colorblind is a way of dismissing the fact that there's a problem in the first place. There are colors. We see those colors. We recognize those colors. But what we do is we say, God made you that way. And you're made in the image of God. And this thing that we say we believe that all lives matter is something that we have to work out until it actually takes root in society in all places and in all ways and for all people. And this is not a judgment on anyone that is a civil servant at all. This is a, a word of solidarity that says if we care about truth and, and the prophetic, that somehow we have to push past into the deeper parts of conversation where we begin to learn to understand a little bit more, and even if we don't agree, 
we can empathize and find hard-fought, hard-won unity. Not cheap plastic unity because we avoid the difficult conversation, but hard-fought, hard-won unity, the kind of unity that Jesus was calling to because we truly love each other. Um, I'm out of, way out of, way, way out of time. We might have like one song, but I want to say this about myself. Here's my confession. I'll read it. I realized that Jesus, this half of his words were about, and maybe we just won't do music. Maybe we'll just close and go to Redux. Um, Listen, not all Jesus' words were about salvation. Most of his words were about maturity. And those words about maturity often had to do with what love looked like. And so we talk about what, a, lot, a lot about what love looked like. And here's what I begin to realize. The opposite of love is unlove. And that's the starting point for me. Um, to be fully love like God is love would mean I'd have to be fully holy and I'm not. And so I have a big chunk of unlove in me. So unlove looks like this. Unlove is rash. Unlove is mean. It envies, it boasts, it is proud. It dishonors others. It is self-seeking. It is easily angered. It keeps record of wrongs. Love delights in evil and doesn't, re- um, and doesn't rejoice with truth. Unloved delights in evil and doesn't rejoice with truth. It always injures, always defends itself, always criticizes, always tries to save itself. Unlove sometimes fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and unlove. But the one we choose the most is unlove. The greatest commandment, according to unlove, is that God would love me with his all, all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, that my neighbor would love me like I love myself. Or that you would do unto me as I would do unto me. And what I'm realizing um, is that the confession is I have a whole lot of unlove in me and I need to repent of not caring. I need to repent of being immune from things. I need to repent of my desire for tension to end. By the end of the night, I wanted to call some of my African-American friends during those shootings and I wanted to talk to them and have them resolve it for me so that I could go to bed that night and and just kind of feel like I'd, at least I've now put that aside. Or, I, or sometimes we turn into the news just so that we can frame it and be like, now I can put it aside. But our African-American friends go to bed with the tension. What is it about me and my privilege that I so easily try to go, I, I deserve to be able to resolve this whole mess by the time I go to bed? And that my African-American friends who are grieving should help me with that. I need to repent of my desire for the tension to end by the end of the night, it's unlove. I need to repent of my unlove and how I see those people. I need to repent of how I see, how I use unfair mechanisms to keep the plight of the other at arm's length. Different verbal games I play that are unlove. Repent of only offering my gratitude when tensions are high and I have someone to point the finger at, blaming others. I need to repent of stoking the fires of opinion without really investing the time to listen to the other side. You need to Drop that Facebook post before you hit post. We need to not say dumb things on Facebook. We all care about rules of journalism, that if you're a journalist and you, you put things in print, there's an ethical standard that you have to live by. Like, we all believe that. What you're doing online, you're putting out your, your thoughts into the world. You're acting as a Christian journalist. 
So we should have ethics that go with that. Drop that post. Read it twice. I need to repent of being glad it's not happening to my family um, without really taking account of the fact that it is happening to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to repent of being the beneficiary of historic racism without really wanting to own my responsibility in working for equality. I'd rather just keep going the way I'm going. I need to repent of selfishness. I need to repent of the unlove of indifference. I need to repent of the unlove of pride. I need to repent of the unlove of trying to win without first trying to know. Please don't use these events as a way to be right. Trying to be right before you try to love is where all things go wrong. Trying to love will make you right. I saw a sign driving back yesterday on the five freeway and it said, Saturday is the Sabbath. There's a big truck parked so that you could read the thing on the sign. It says, Saturday is the Sabbath and Sunday is the mark of the beast. <laughs> you guys didn't get the humor in that. Ridiculous. Trying to be right before trying to love is where all things go wrong and I need to repent of my desire to be right or to win without first trying to know or to love. I need to repent of missing the fact that I'm not praying for my enemies. I need to repent of the fact that I am a part of the problem as much as part of the solution to what's wrong with the world. I need to repent of the fact that instead of leaving judgment to the Lord, I take it upon myself to judge others because, <laughs> because heck, I'm good at it and it makes me feel good. Unlove warms my belly. True love requires sacrifice and it feels painful. I need to repent that I follow and take comfort that I'm not the only one more than I lead when it comes to the matters of the difficult faith commitments that Jesus expected of his followers. Like, I'm not the only one that lives this way. That's not the idea. True love wants to be with the one who is love and is willing to fight so hard to be with him that we're willing to take the sins of the world onto ourselves and confess those. God, forgive us because we're racist. Forgive us because we're indifferent. Forgive us because we want to hold on to our privilege and seek comfort. Forgive us. I'm willing to die that others might somehow live. No matter what, I want to be where Christ is. And Christ always was aiming at the cross. I need to repent of not bringing God into my stress, my pride, and my dreams. I am unlove. On my way, hopefully, to becoming more love. We, as a church, as a, as a corporate body, there's unlove here. Because we're humans, we're imperfect. When we come together, there are imperfect parts to us. And we need to be able to confess our unlove and want to trade it for more of his love. And that comes in pushing past. It comes in pushing past and going into the deep conversations where we might disagree, where I might lose my job tomorrow, um, but where we can actually maybe do some hard work and find true unity.